0: Welcome to the Ask Why podcast, a series of conversations exploring the future of learning and the future of work with experts ranging from professional educators to investors, company builders, and individual learners. The way we learn and the way we work is changing rapidly. Artificial intelligence is automating ever more tasks around us, putting pressure on all of us to rescale and upskill at accelerated rates while dealing with a level of unprecedented information overload. The education system built for an age of information, scarcity and around a broadcast model of teachers and learners is simply no longer fit for purpose. But what can we put in its place? If this is a topic you're interested in, I invite you to subscribe to our podcast by searching for hashtag ask why in your favorite podcast app or follow us on YouTube or TikTok and catch the video feed of these conversations, which are happening in VR today's guest is Mary Kernack Cook. Mary and I have known each other for about three or four years now. She started as a marketing director for Food from Britain before changing the face of UK education by taking on the role of CEO at UCAS. She held or holds council and advisory positions at the Open University, the Higher Education Policy Institute, the London Interdisciplinary School, and she's the chair of Pearson UK.
1: I'm Mary Kernock Cook. Um I've been working in and around the education sector for over 30 years. Um, Right now I have a a completely non-executive portfolio um, across uh, quite a wide area of education and ed tech, probably focusing mostly on higher education. Previous to that, I um, was chief exec of UCAS, the university admissions service, but I've been working around qualifications and curriculum and assessment and vocational education as i said for over over 30 years uh
0: very very illustrious and very long uh past with education very interesting and and specifically those topics uh, i definitely have lots of questions about so it'll be a, an interesting conversation today um as as i did uh tell you earlier the I always like to start the conversation with two questions I I ask everyone. Uh, The first one being, what is something you believe to be true that most people in your industry, so in this case, say education at large, would disagree with?
1: Um, Okay, I I think I am going to pick something around qualifications and assessment because there's been a lot of talk, particularly post-pandemic, um, when obviously school exams were were cancelled and so on, um, and I think everybody's kind of in the mood of oh let's you know let's scrap GCSEs let's change everything, and actually one of the things that I learned from that whole period was was just how important credentials are for for people they you know they want to have something which validates their achievement and something critically that's got currency and when i say currency i mean that is accepted for currency to to progress to further learning or to employment or or whatever so i think there's a kind of a common conversation at the moment which is we could do lots of different types of assessment and it could all be much less stressful for people and it could be uh more focused on soft skills and and so on um but I would I would probably put in a pretty strong vote for at least some formal assessment, formal qualifications, and formal credentials, not necessarily just in school, and um, possibly uh, further on in people's careers as well.
0: Very interesting. And so I'll go off off script instantly with because uh, it's a good good time to kind of dive into it, that a little bit more. So, how would you? Within that framework, then how would you think about formative assessment and kind of the the idea of moving away from a point in time uh, test based assessment? How, how do you think about kind of the dynamics there?
1: Yeah, so so I think there's two issues there. So I'm not a great fan of the everybody does you know their maths GCSE on the 23rd of May every year, and that's your kind of do or die. Moment, um, so I'm not. You know, I think there's lots of ways we could get away from that. I'm very pro-formative assessment. I think that's something that everybody wants and needs to do to kind of check on their progress. Um, but I think that's different from uh, the possibilities that could be opened up by kind of more anytime, any place, anywhere, kind of when ready type assessment. Um, so I've always felt that we should look more at uh, allowing people to kind of go through a, a stepped progression of assessment rather than having it, you know, as I said, a single day when you do or die. Um, and yeah, that that's partly formative assessment. But, uh, you know, I'd like to think that somebody who felt they were ready to get a grade five in their GCSE maths could go and take an exam for grade five GCSE maths and pass it or not i'm i'm kind of gcse maths i've kind of picked that one because it's such an iconic um qualification it's probably the one that most people struggle with um mm. and therefore is kind of very very central i think to some of these debates
0: and how do you think about the scope of these assessments you talked about Um, GCSE math uh, and so that's like there's a decent scope and it kind of goes across many many different things and when lots of the formative assessment one one of the key things is it's kind of smaller pieces as people go along so how do you how do you think about both the formal kind of larger scope assessment and the and the smaller kind of step-by-step Assessment type approach, like where do you land there in terms of what you think is the 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 better way?
1: Yeah, I think it depends. Depends what you're trying to assess. You know, if I, if I think about my working life, you know, the number of times that I've had a very late notice request to kind of get a topic or a proposal or a report or something together at very short notice. And produce you know what might be the kind of grown up version of a of an essay um in very short time using using the knowledge that i have and and thoughts that I have kind of embedded in in my memory um you know that that happens all the time in the workplace so i th- still think there is a place for people to be able to um access arguments knowledge and and uh bring bring those together in a in a way um that forms an argument or forms a proposal or updates a, a you know a sit rep or something um and equally um yeah small small bits of assessment are good as well but you know i think a lot of what we know and um how we think about things is a, is a an aggregate of much broader learning than you do in one step um so i do think there's always a place for larger more more expansive more synoptic assessments as well as the kind of small uh, smaller pieces as well
0: so you would say both are required and they 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 say different things
1: they yeah and you know in in the end whatever you're trying to assess there you know there are various ways you can try and assess it and there's probably only one or two ways that are really valid in terms of assessment so yeah if you if you need to check something small like has on has somebody understood the kind of food safety and hygiene regs you know in a in a commercial kitchen that's a quite a small piece of a assessment that somebody can do as a small piece of assessment but um yeah i think if if you're going to be um i don't know a journalist or a a doctor or something then you're get, you're going to have to draw on multiple bits of learning and synthesize multiple bits of learning very often and so being able to do that in you know through an assessment may be a more valid way of assessing some things okay and and
0: so the average time that any particular skill stays relevant is or has continuously been going down, right, due to a bunch of different pressures around, uh, mostly around acceleration of the environment around us, and so the the world changes faster than it used to. When you think about the larger scope assessments, would you say that they stretch across all areas, or are there specific areas where you think the larger scope assessments are more appropriate than? others um and let let me kind of just go one one step deeper so that the question is is clear at the is there a point where if the assessment or building up building up to the assessment takes or longer than the time that the particular skill stays relevant where where is the balance between kind of the time invested to demonstrate the acquisition of a particular skill versus the 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 time that that particular skill stays relevant in the first place so does does my question take make sense
1: well i'm i'm going to i'm going to take my sense from it and i will use the analogy of a driving test which uh you go through however many lessons and tests it takes you to to pass your driving test um and if you like that that gives you the basis then to learn to drive and become an experienced driver and to adapt your skills as the as you drive in different uh different places and different contexts and different weather and you know nighttime versus daytime. On a motorway versus you know a country road, and that's all stuff that you learn mm-hmm. after. And I think the workplace is very like that. Um, you know, w- w- did did I learn most um of what I know about business, you know, at my London Business School masters? Um, no, not really, but it gave me a context in which to enrich how how I experienced and learned from. Uh, being in the workplace and and building on those skills, so yeah, sure, there's there's some there's some kind of skills and knowledge that maybe need to be recertified and um, reassessed as you go on, but you know, I always think that you know the formal learning that we do is um, is just a, a basis from which to to learn more, and I, and I guess, Josh, if I asked you, you know, did you, did you learn more at school or or at, um university or did you learn more since you actually started working in the in the workplace and i'm i'm almost certain it would be the latter rather than the former
0: correct yes uh for sure uh, and, and so that that brings me to the to that next piece is do you think the assessment is more useful before the workplace than while you're in it So before you are part of the workforce, rather than when you are right in it or not.
1: Yeah, it's going to, again, there's a bit of horses for courses on this, you know, some, some things where you need a very specific piece of, um, skill or knowledge in order to undertake a particular, I don't know, an engineering operation or something. Um, then you can probably see very directly, I learned how to do this in, you know, in the lab and, uh, now I'm doing it in the, in the workplace um i i think for the most part i think of education as being a kind of exercise of of the brain and um uh, learning to, to to stretch how you think about things or how you do things or what you're prepared to approach that gives you a gives you a reasonable level of of confidence to um to approach lots of new things that we all you know that we all face every day in the yeah. in the workplace so yeah I think there's a a complicated relationship between what you learn in your formal education or your formal training and what you do day to day in the workplace or indeed outside of the workplace um, but uh, yeah, it's different in different circumstances that's not not a very helpful answer i suspect
0: well we we, we can dive into a little bit more later um uh, before before we get entirely sidetracked uh, i, I would like to ask you the the second question I ask everyone which is at a at a personal level what was the best learning experience you have had and why do you consider that to be the best experience
1: um well given that my formal education was was rather uh, unorthodox um the best learning experience i had was was working yeah un- un- undoubtedly was just being being kind of thrown in the deep end uh, in business and figuring out <laughs> what to do and how to do it, how to do it well. So yeah, so I'm probably not a great advert for for formal education and training. Um, I I feel actually, you know, what what do I most regret? I regret that I didn't learn any history or geography. Or, uh, you know, after the age of about fourteen, I don't regret for a minute that I didn't get taught any work skills at school because um i was quite quite happy learning all of that in the workplace and and in the workplace
0: out of all the various positions that you held uh, and the various experiences you've had is there any particular period that jumps out where you feel like that was a period where i where really i went through some supercharged learning and um
1: definitely <laughs> definitely Um, Actually, it was in my last um, executive role where I was chief exec of of UCAS, the University Admissions Service. And um, interestingly, when I arrived there in 2010, I thought I was joining this, you know, this very modern organization that had put all its, uh, all the university applications had had been put online. And I, you know, in 2010, that was, doesn't seem that long ago, but, you know, that, that felt pretty modern for a kind of you know, kind of infrastructure organization like UCAS. So I thought I was joining this, you know, this very kind of advanced organization. And um, I can remember being taken on a tour of the of the, of the UCAS facilities. And we went down into the kind of facilities operations thing. And there were these pallet loads of uh, paper being kind of shipped in and out of the warehouse. And I soon discovered that all the online applications that um, potential students were making for university were coming in and we were then printing them out five times over because they had five applications each and <laughs> and shipping out pallet loads of paper to to the universities all over the place and and that was a big wake-up call for me and i realized that um <clears throat> wasn't quite as modern anyway to, to cut a long story short um that is amazing. i quickly i quickly came to understand at a time when you know higher education was uh, fees and funding and so on were changing very radically, um, so uh, you know, and, and were affecting demand in quite um, you know quite radical ways in, in the in the years when the fees changed in in 2012. So the year before there was a massive spike, and then there was a bit of a dip, and then there was another spike and so on. And uh, yeah, I quickly had to get my head around um, uh, transforming our entire kind of technology infrastructure. And that was completely new to me and that was very challenging.
0: <laughs> wow. Yeah, that, that must have been a very interesting experience. Uh I had
1: It was terrifying I had to, so it was terrifying. <laughs> the so blind had, leading had, the blind, I sometimes thought. <laughs>
0: Can imagine. So I had a similar experience, I think at a similar timeline, a little bit earlier, I think it was two thousand eight something like that where uh, i was a legal assistant for um for a few years and that's still like you at all josh no i know know, know. it was it was a different time um but i i basically ended up having to print out every email that one of the lawyers would get continuously and i i remember going through the argument that please 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 let me at least print double-sided and it's like no I want to. Uh, it it adds an additional half a second every time that I have to do turn paper around this way rather than the, the rather than just putting it aside, and the the whole paper uh, going from paper to digital was was a big part yeah. of what I ended up doing within the within yeah, the and I think at it, the time.
1: I think you've got to have a little bit of sympathy. Fun funnily enough, my um. My predecessor when i when I went to ucas had had been in that school as well, so his his p a um printed out all the emails and then he dictated um responses and and then she emailed them back to people, so the whole thing kind of took as long as the old royal mail <laughs> postal system um no. and yeah, and it was it was quite interesting because of course um when I said "Oh no, 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 I don't that's not how i work i'll I'll do all my own." correspondence, I need you to, you know, manage my diary and make sure I'm prepared for for everything. And yeah, that didn't that didn't last long because that wasn't what um the person who was doing that job knew knew how to do and could no. couldn't make that transition. So that was interesting. I also went, yeah. um I can remember saying, Oh, I like to work open plan. Um and yeah, before I started the role, there was a lot of pushback on that. Like, oh no, I think we can do that when you get here, and yeah, we'll think about it. And I, I really had to insist. And um, and of course, it turned out that um a lot of the senior people who still had offices there were really worried that they were going to have to go open plan <laughs> if I did. So oh, I exactly. insisted, and it did. It did change over time, anyway.
0: And so, in in that experience, right? So what made it? such a great learning experience? Was it just the amount of stuff to fix? Was there something special about the point in time or your attitude? Like, what, what was the thing that made it such a great learning experience?
1: Um, it was a great learning experience because, because it was really critical. You know, It wasn't just like, ooh, fun, I'll go and learn about this stuff. This was literally about whether I would keep my job or not, whether the whole system would fall over. You know, the next summer when A-level results came and the universities were doing all their decision making yeah. about who had got in and who hadn't got in, so it was, yeah, it was existential for me personally. Um, but it was also, um, yeah, it was it. You know, the the UCAS system was a critical piece of education infrastructure, and um, I had to make sure that it it didn't fall over. There was no there's no other way that people could know whether they'd got into university or not other than other than through <laughs> us. So yeah, it was it was pretty hairy scary.
0: Um, yeah, must have been a really interesting period indeed. Um so going into the kind of the non um uh the, the, the more custom questions here when you think about the future of learning when you think about higher education obviously we just went through covid um hopefully we're on the other well i mean at least mentally somewhat on the other end of it um, but the there's been an enormous amount of experimentation around remote not remote in person hybrid what are what are your thoughts on how kind of the what what the right future or what a better future looks like? What how should we think it, be thinking about in person and remote? Um, and what have you seen work or what are you excited about?
1: Yeah, so I think one of my big learnings from the pandemic period was that coming out of it, you know, obviously there was a big kind of political discourse about, you know. Government saying universities must get back to in-person teaching, and um, but actually quite a lot of students saying, well, we quite liked aspects of um the online experience and the resources that were made available to us, and and that was particularly, I think, for um, students with disabilities, for example, who said, hey, you know, this is stuff that we've been asking for for years. And we've always been told that it's too difficult and too expensive, and um, and then suddenly it happens. It the pivot happens in in two weeks flat when when COVID hit, yeah. And you know, so there were big gains for those sort of people. I think a lot of people, particularly in the cost of living crisis, are having to put in more part time work in order to uh, make sure they can afford to to stay um, with their studies at university. And so people aren't saying is online better or is face-to-face better? People, It's both and. And I think it's now more about understanding the learning journey that people go through. And it it will be different for different individuals with different contexts, different age, different um, demands in their lives about the things they want to do in person and the things that they want to do online. So um, a very highly flexible system is necessary and it's going to be (laughs) It's going to require fundamental change in universities. You know, for the last um, ten, fifteen years, they've been focusing on developing, you know, the physical estate, and I think the focus needs to go much more onto the digital estate. Actually, funny enough, I thought when I we were talking about Ucas earlier, and I, the time I thought I was the only organisation in the world who had this terrible kind of legacy IT system, but now I've discovered that universities have all that as well and probably worse than we did and they've still got it (laughs) um, uh, so it's very hard and um for universities to get into the right space to be able to make the decisions about what they offer to their students and the kind of level of flexibility that's available
0: and and how do you think about about universities and the role there in in contrast or in in combination with kind of these um newer models of uh of higher education that are coming up challenging institutions and kind of how how do you think about the dynamic of the the, the institutions that are there and the ones that are trying to challenge the status quo like how yeah. where do you think the innovation is going to come from and, and and what do you think is working
1: yeah so i'm always um a bit conflicted here because you know I, lo- I love the higher education sector i love what universities do and what the kind of personal transformations that they make available to individual students in all sorts of different ways but on the other hand i i kind of you know wring my hands at um how how kind of stuck they are in a particular model and i would particularly single out subjects know, course programs and so on, which have been, uh, you know, the same kind of taxonomy of, you know, law, social sciences, mathematics, biology, you know, whatever. That That's all been around for certainly decades, if not centuries. And I just think that the world has changed so much. And this is a real pity that universities couldn't be more fleet of foot to have more relevant, more interdisciplinary, more, um, you know, curriculum that's kind of more based around topic areas rather than subjects and that's more flexible in terms of what's taught. I think it would be easier for students to find that curriculum to be relevant to their working lives afterwards.
0: But I imagine that some of that. Is a direct result of your involvement with London interdisciplinary school as well, right?
1: I think it's the other way around. Um my my interest in London interdisciplinary school was is, was fueled by happening. by yeah. my observations that there was a, a need, I think, Same. to to modernise yeah. modernise curriculum, yeah. And so how how do you think
0: how do you think these kind of challenger models can help change the the landscape? Uh, of higher education
1: yeah it's a really tricky problem because undoubtedly it is hellish difficult to kind of create let's say a new university and also the way that the regulation and so on is set up tends to tends to drag you know a new challenger institution to try and make it look as much like the traditional sector as possible in order to kind of meet the the standards um so it is really, really hard to innovate in this area. Um, so I think probably the challenger providers, let's call them, will probably have to break out and potentially create new categories. Um, so in in other words, not to, to challenge the traditional sector by creating a new university, but to challenge the traditional sector by creating a, some kind of new category of of um, credentialing and and learning and curriculum that that people want and need in twenty first century. Yeah,
0: and, and like, would you have any thoughts around that? Like, if if somebody were to try and do this, what what might be an approach? If you were if you were to go and and, and try and do this and and basically build a. Um, a different model, right? That would that would have some elements of credentialing and have some element of, of curriculum, but like they, they are fundamentally different. What what would be your first steps?
1: Yeah, so um uh, I, I still think of myself as a as a kind of a marketing animal with a small M. I mean and these days I wouldn't know how to do any of the kind of sophisticated digital marketing that goes on, but Marketing with a small M, which is kind of understanding your market, your customers. (laughs) And, you know, what I, what I observe is that, um, people who want to go to university now, their kind of principal concern is, is what, um, what currency the degree will have for supporting a successful working life after university. Um. And that's not to say that they don't then love their subject or love their course and want to get deep into it as well, but and and I think that is where the kind of friction is is what what skills are have value and are needed in you know in the kind of modern economy and the modern modern workplace <clears throat> versus what does you know genuinely enriched learning look like and yeah i worry that if we get too much um towards kind of making the link between what you learn and what what you know what value you have um in in terms of finding a job afterwards and that we don't do enough to kind of stretch people's minds and give them the kind of cognitive agility that allows them to you know, progress, change, um, uh, you know, and 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 surf the change that their lives will undoubtedly witness. um then I think we've we've got a problem. So, yeah, it's trying to find the balance between, um, as I say, the kind of cognitive development in more general terms and the specific skills that that people need. you know i do I do observe that um, employers have been crying foul for as long as I can remember that, you know, graduates don't have the skills they need to come into the workplace, they don't come in work ready, etc. And actually, I sometimes think, well, maybe it's not the job of universities to produce kind of oven ready workers. And actually, employers need to take on a lot more responsibility for preparing um, their employees to be successful in the workplace. It's it's a it's a different kind of learning that takes place there. Now that's that's leaving aside, you know, that you need training to do a very particular operation or a very particular user piece of tech or whatever it is. That's that's kind of different. But in terms of of kind of uh, yeah existing and thriving and flourishing in the workplace more generally, um, I think employers need to get a lot better at that. very interesting indeed and
0: so i i think i obviously can't not touch on the last 3 months and what has happened with artificial intelligence and chat gpt and everything that that is sudden or that suddenly appears possible and definitely the turmoil that it has created do you how do you think about the the interaction or the use of artificial intelligence in the in the future of learning and and I guess the future of higher education
1: Yeah. Um well I hope everybody doesn't kind of get terrified and decide that we have to revert to, you know, invigilated in person exams for everything to ensure that people aren't using um <laughs> uh AI tools to you know to, to generate answers. I, I, I read an article somewhere, I can't remember where it was, where where the um uh the educator was setting an AI task and they the task was that the students had to they had to give the right instructions yeah. to chat GPT. Ethan, to... Ethan Mullock. Okay, where did I read that? I'd like to look uh, at this again actually, so if you could yeah. remind you <laughs> that because...
0: it, was, yeah, it was Ethan Ethan Mullock who did the he, he did his class uh he I think he wrote it on medium um oh, okay so yeah, when, when quite I
1: across yeah. That. yeah and and I thought that was much more the kind of attitude that we need to take that we we need to educate people to exist in a world where chat g p t and similar large language models exist um not only uh so that they can use them but also so they can learn to. Uh, project what uh, what new things will be enabled by that kind of technology. You know, this I, I do feel that our our, our education is um, lacking in a kind of technology context. I'm not just talking about edtech mm. tools and so on. I'm talking about just mm. general understanding. You know, we so we started talking about GCSE mathematics, and you know, I really tear my hair out. At the, I I just think we're teaching young people the wrong kind of maths they should let their computers do all the calculating and they should be learning to use mathematical tools in, you know, computational thinking and AI and data, data analytics and data science and modeling and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah.
0: And do you think there's, so when you think about, um, tool or subject areas, that are, I guess, writing intensive, how do you think about the, kind of the consequence of large language model capabilities like ChatGPT, so about the, kind of the, the part where you are just at the middle ground of learning how to translate your thoughts into writing in a structured way. And the the use of artificial intelligence within that environment, do you think we should just like jump almost jump over it, or or kind of spend very little time there because la- large language models basically have made this obsolete now, and so we should focus on what comes after? Or do you think there's still real value in developing that that first process?
1: Yeah, I think there's there's potentially huge value for um, using those kind of um, tools to aid learning, um, by the way, also to aid educators in you know in preparing materials for you know I think the potential kind of workload gains for for educators both in schools and and higher higher up. Um, I guess the you know I mean the the essay question is will the essay be you know be sacrosanct if if people could just press a button on Chat GPT and have have it automatically generated and you know can we detect that and so on um and i don't know the answer to that yet but i'm pretty sure that if somebody can um invent chat gpt they can also invent something which could um detect when you know when something isn't personally authored by uh, by an individual so i'm not i'm not too worried about that i think everyone's in a panic because it was sort of like one day we had no chat gpt the next day we we had it and you know you could you could literally you know, join join online and go and ask it a question and it would generate an answer. Um, so I think there's a fair amount of panic around. Um I'm quite sure that the system will catch up. But, you know, the 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 most important thing for me is that, you know, we should teach students to kind of roll with these tools and not kind of ban them from, you know, ever using them or whatever. I mean, this is just a you know, it's a huge resource and it's undoubtedly going to shape our lives. Um you know, in and, and its various iterations for um, you know, for a long time to come.
0: Yeah. I'm I'm less uh less confident in you that there will be a something that can detect it properly purely because of the fact that like at this point we are we're past just ChatGPT, but a bunch of open source models have spun up sure. as well. And but, yeah. but either either way I, I agree with um with the idea that we are in a world where these things exist now, and so yeah. mathematics without the calculator is not something that we spend too much time on, um, and, and neither should we think about the world of of writing and reasoning, actually, without these tools being present at all. There's clear, clear value, but there's also um, the value that comes after you know that these tools exist and how much you can do leveraging them.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And... Kind of bringing back to we
0: some of the part that we we talked about earlier in the conversation, but the assessment piece here. And right? so, how how do you think about? So we talked about the kind of the formative piece, the formal piece, the point in time piece. How do you think about the topic of it, of inclusivity? within assessment right the, the thematic around like some people test better than others or specific forms of tests uh, than others uh, have you have you thought about how we could make assessment more inclusive uh and
1: easily yeah i tend to assessment. i tend to think mm. that um yeah in 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 most spheres of life you know some people are better or or, or less well suited to you know whatever it is like you know, do you like the city or the countryside? Do you know? do you like um big companies or small companies? do you you know, do you want to work at a desk or do you want to be doing something with your hands? Like people have different aptitudes and different personal likes and dislikes. So for me, what's kind of more relevant is um, the concept of authentic assessment so that you you make sure that whatever assessment method you're using, it's an authentic way of assessing what needs to be assessed, rather than, you know, a highly limited and boundary mode of assessment, which is like that because assessment has to be like that. <laughs> um, and so I'm, you know, I'm really in favour of the fact that there's been more open book, more take home assessment, and so on in universities. You know, if even if even the University of Cambridge. Um realized after the covid period that actually it could assess its students' um aptitudes better through some of those techniques um than by getting everybody to put their gowns on and come to an exam hall then you know then I think we're making we're making progress, and you know we talked earlier about what what happens to us all in the workplace you know we are tested every day because something comes up that we have to respond to or do um uh and you know, in different ways. So, yeah, so I'm kind of more more about authentic assessment. I think if we have authentic assessment, then that will is likely to be more inclusive okay, okay. yeah, that
0: that makes that makes a lot of sense. I haven't actually thought about um that particular way of framing it uh, in the past authentic assessment. So the assessment fitting the purpose of the skill or whatever is being evaluated.
1: Exactly. Uh, Yeah, that's exactly. And I, yeah, so I sometimes think in the, in the kind of school system here in the UK, that's one of the things that's kind of a bit the wrong way around that when government wants to change what we learn, they change the exams and the qualifications. um, And it should be that you change, you change the curriculum and then you say, what's the best way to assess the people have learned what we want to them to learn and what we think we've taught them.
0: Yeah. And yeah, you know, so I've, I've, I've gone through, uh, most of my questions We're actually almost exactly on time. So that's perfect. Fantastic. Um, so I wanted to, to finish asking you, uh, what is a question that you currently have that you wish you had an answer to?
1: Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Um. Yeah, so the question I have is you know, is about what's the right kind of curriculum to be introduced to people when they're still at school that will prepare them better for the for the modern technological age and give them more um options and understanding of their choices when they choose their career or they choose what university course to do. How do you, how do you bring that into the curriculum without losing what I think is kind of a basic human right that all kids should have the opportunity to, you know, to learn about our past and about our present and about our environment and about science and um, as well as obvious, obvious skills around literacy and, and numeracy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that's the question for me: is how do how do we introduce that modernity, which I think is vital and necessary? How do we introduce that modernity into school level education without um, losing the kind of rich underpinning of you know almost like the foundational education that I think everybody has a right. To receive before they're sent out to try and earn their living.
0: Okay, yeah, definitely a really important question to find an answer to at some point, actually quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good. Um. And do you have any idea, out of all the questions I asked, which one you think could have been?
1: Oh, do you know? I forgot to. Uh, I forgot to have my antenna out for that. And now I can't remember all the questions we talked about: future of learning, in-person,
0: remote educational models, challenger institutions, future of AI in learning, the future of assessment, uh, subject of inclusivity within assessment. Um, those were the main the main areas yeah. we explored. Yeah. So, so I'll, I'll I'll just tell you in that case. So the. Yeah. Um, the bit that came from from ChatGPT was about the challenger models and the um, how challenger universities uh, can or could help change the landscape of higher education.
1: Ah, oh, that's interesting. So, what question did you ask ChatGPT to get it to come up with that?
0: So, I fed it um, your interview with Emerge, and I, okay. then I, I asked it to provide me with five. Thoughtful, non-obvious questions that I could ask Mary Cronoff-Cook. <laughs> and
1: that's what it came up with. <laughs> no, that's so interesting. That's so interesting. I must spend some more time on ChatGPT and um, actually figure out what it's useful for and what it's not useful for. I'm just, um, I just—I know we're just about to end, so I'm just enjoying this amazing view, which, um, yeah, just looking out over some little harbor here. Do do Do, do you know what country we're in? I wondered I whether don't... we were in kind of like a Norwegian fjord or something. <laughs> so the fjord uh, would be would have
0: much higher um, cliffs and hills. Of all. I mean, yeah, basically quite, the mountain,
1: quite high behind you and yeah, over there.
0: It's so I don't think it's an actual country. So far as I understand, it's it's uh, imagined landscapes, but it is okay. very nice and peaceful, isn't
1: it? Yeah, it's lovely. It's lovely. So how did you how did you think the conversation went? Um, I, I yeah, no, I found asking. it. I found it really interesting. I have to say that I'm. I think one of the key things will be for somebody to kind of design better headsets because I do find this yes quite kind of claustrophobic. But it's yeah. interesting how it genuinely takes you into a, into a different place. And I I kept having to kind of remind myself that you know what you actually look like as opposed to your avatar. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. And um, yeah, so there is a there's an unreality about. Virtual reality, I guess, that I find um, a little bit disconcerting. um But equally, it's potentially less distracting. That's yeah, well, distracting you don't have, when you kind you of can't even see your
0: computer, right? So your phone or your computer, like they're all gone. So we're, we're entirely yeah, here, yeah. basically.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, no, it's been a fantastic experience. I'm glad I, I kind of battled with getting myself sorted out on the technology. So thanks for introducing me to it, Josh.
0: Well, thanks for, for taking the time. Really, really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thank, thank you so very much. much.
0: Thank you very much and have a great day. Thanks so much. And- Bye now. Bye. <laughs> the way we learn and the way we work is changing rapidly. Artificial intelligence is automating ever more tasks around us, putting pressure on all of us to rescale and upskill at accelerated rates while dealing with a level of unprecedented information overload. The education system Built for an age of information scarcity and around a broadcast model of teachers and learners, is simply no longer fit for purpose. But what can we put in its place? I'm your host, Joshua Vöhler, CEO at Mindstone, and I hope today's conversation shed light on at least some of the problems we're facing. If you thought today's conversation was interesting, I invite you to subscribe to our podcast by searching for hashtag AskWhy in your favorite podcast app or follow us on YouTube or TikTok and catch the video feed of these conversations, which are happening in VR.